Thanks for joining us at Mountainside, anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we are here to serve. Please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage throughout the week. Let's join Pastor Dave now as he continues our study in the book of Mark. You know, I'm always put off when I have a conversation with somebody and they call uh, the Bible a rule book. In fact, they'll usually say, like, your rule book. Um, It's never said as a compliment. Because I think of the book as a book of love from God. The grand story of people are sinners. We can't earn our way to heaven. And so God made a way through the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And yet, the Bible has a lot of rules. Uh, The Old Testament is said to have 613 rules, and that's Genesis. Really, it's Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, I never really thought to look it up until this week. There's 1,050 commands to obey in the New Testament. It says if you remove the duplicates, there's still 800. And so we have 1,413 commandments in the Scripture. But Jesus said something really interesting, that all of the rules, all of the commands can be summed up in two. Love God and love others. Then I think of it, well, it is about love. Um, And everyone in our world knows the world has fallen. They don't use those words. They know the world needs love. I mean, how David wrote the words, what the world needs now is love, sweet love. And I know what you're thinking. It's the only thing that there's just too little of. Stevie Wonder wrote... Uh, love's in need of love, and bring yours in today. Don't delay, send it in right away. Um, seems wrong to call love a rule, right? But we learn quickly that love is not always easy. I don't know if you ever thought about this, and I hope I don't ruin it for you, but 1 Corinthians 13 is really about messy people. It's read at so many weddings. It's the most beautiful words ever written. Uh, maybe in the English language, or in the, it wasn't written in English, it was written in Greek, but in, in history, right? It's, it's a fabulous text. And yet, it's all about difficult people. Love is patient. A patient assumes a frustrating person. Love is kind, not, is kind and not rude. It's a reminder not to say what you're thinking. Uh, Love is not jealous, boastful, or proud. It assumes somebody who is better than you at something and somebody who's not quite up to your standard. It doesn't demand its own way. It means do it the other person's way. It's not irritable. It means somebody's irritating. It keeps no record of being wrong. Someone is wronging you. It does not rejoice about injustice. Injustice is being done. It rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Truth is being challenged. Love never gives up. We're ready to give up 
never loses faith. Faith is being challenged. It's always hopeful. Hope is being challenged. It endures every circumstance. It assumes difficult times and is thinking of quitting. Now, that's the reality. You know, it's easy to love people that are awesome and love me, right? You know, when, you, when a couple stands here to get married, I think about this every wedding. When they say, for better or worse, I'm thinking, they have no idea how worse, <laughs> worse is going to be, right? And sickness and health and sick is going to try their limits. And poor, whoo, wait till they start paying rent and all of those kinds of things that they haven't been. Love is not easy. It's hard. It's not when things are convenient. In fact, today we're really going to jump out of Mark into 1 Corinthians to talk about this idea of law because Jesus is going to talk about commandments. And when you hear the two main points of the message, there would be no question that these commands are based on the preeminence of love. And if I'm honest, these two rules have the ring of being ridiculous. And if you don't think they're ridiculous when you first hear them, then you didn't hear me right. In fact, our first reaction is, that doesn't sound right. And see what you think. Some of will walk away today just, I'm going to ignore that. That's, I'm, just, I'm just not going to do that. So let's go to Mark chapter 2, verse 23, and we'll read up through uh, chapter 3, verse 4, and I'll make a few comments as we read along. Verse 23, and the scripture will be behind me. On Sabbath day, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, the disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. Uh, breaking off grain is harvesting, right? So it's work, and today is, that day is the Sabbath. It wasn't a Stewart's in sight. Um, imagine a time when there's no restaurants, there's no places to go get food. You're hungry and you come to a field of wheat and they start breaking it off and start eating it. I, I can't even imagine being that hungry, but um, the Pharisee said to Jesus, look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus answers this question in a very confusing way in the sense that he's giving them an answer and challenging them to, uh, um, to think differently. He reminds them that David ate forbidden fruit when hungry. Dave, Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures that David did when he and his companions were hungry? They went into the house of God during the days of Abathar, the high priest, and broke the law by eating sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And he gave some to his companions. That's exactly true. It was forbidden for anybody but the priest to eat the bread. And David uh, got the bread and ate it and gave it to his companions. And so the principle then, Jesus says, the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Now that's a very profound statement. Jesus declared, God declared a day of rest at creation. He talked about that he rested the th seventh day, the last day. 
And so the idea of being a rest is not merely about obeying rules. It's, uh, we'll talk a lot more about this in just a second. But it's the idea that this was done so, so humanity would stop working for a time and rest. It was for their benefit. Then Jesus says something very interesting. For this, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Now, it's not obvious if you're not familiar with some Old Testament statements, but Son of Man is the declaration that Jesus is the Messiah. And so in making that statement, he says, as Messiah, as God, I'm even over the Sabbath. Chapter 3 then, maybe the same day because it's still Sabbath, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand, a suffering man. And so maybe these troublemakers were following along. And since it's the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies were watching him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. Isn't that just ridiculous? The lengths people will go uh, to trip and to trap Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everybody. He's going to make a point. He turned to the critics and and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath? Or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or destroy it? What do you think their answer was? They didn't answer. How do you answer that question? And that's, we talked about it last week with sometimes Jesus' statements at face values are not quite the point that he's making. He looked around at them angrily and deeply saddened at their hard hearts. What a frustration, what a disappointment, what a sorrow for the, for the Messiah to see the religious leaders of the day being so obstinate against doing good Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and was restored. So what's the problem here? The problem is thinking of the rule as the end of itself, as just a prohibition. Even in Eden, the rule not to eat the fruit was just not merely a rule. It was the fact that if they ate, everything would change. It was an act of, of love not to eat. Uh, It is ultimately a love your neighbor because when they ate, all of humanity suffered. And so God is protecting. Now, you know, sometimes I think, why did God even put the tree in there? Uh, Because that was an act of obedience and an act of love to say no. Let's talk just a minute before about the Sabbath, and we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. In the Bible, uh, the day begins at sunset and ends at sunset. So Sabbath would be, for, would be Friday at sunset and go to Saturday at sunset. So our Saturday night is Sunday. Um, and that's why Genesis 1 says, And evening passed and morning came. It begins with the evening making the first day. And so when Christ rose on the first day of the week, it was a work day. So it's easy to read that and impose on it the fact of our calendar and our schedule that uh, it was the first day of the week. So he rose on a work day. And the Bible makes it clear that the New Testament, well, 
it implies, I'm not saying it makes it clear, but that the early church worshiped on Sunday. In fact, one of the famous ones is Acts 20, verses 7 through 12, where Paul is preaching, and um, he was preaching them, and since he was leaving the next day, he kept talking until midnight. So it would appear that he was preaching at night. Now, it couldn't have been Sunday night, because that would have been Monday, and so it was Saturday night, and that's where the young guy falls asleep, and uh, Paul heals him, and uh, lots of, I've heard preachers preaching that with all kinds of lessons that we can learn from uh, Eutychus. But the early church has a lot to say about uh, Sabbath and Sunday, and it's interesting uh, there's, a, there's a renewed uh, interest in the early church fathers. Dr. Will Varner uh, just wrote a book on the apostolic writers. Um, he was interviewed by Paul Weaver this past week uh, with this book on the apostolic fathers. I got the book. I, I struggle with reading them. I, I, I don't know. Um, but that's more about me than it is about, about them. But in Ignatius, the bishop of Antioch, writing about 115 A.D., warned Christians to reject those who preached law, the Jewish law. Uh, similarly, he wrote, if we still live according to the Jewish law, we acknowledge that we have not received grace. It's absurd to, oppress, to profess Christ Jesus and Judaize. The same sentiment, emphasizing two things. One is their worship on the first day of the week, and two, the fact that they are distancing themselves from Sabbath. Uh, Barnabas in 70 A.D., Justin Martyr in 150 A.D., Irenaeus 250 A.D., Tertullian 200 A.D. So to worship on Sunday morning would have required them to miss work, which would not have been possible. Now, here's the complication. If you hold to a Hebrew clock... Old Testament, they would have worshipped Saturday night. If you hold to a Roman clock, which started at midnight, um, the idea that the noon when the sun is at its, at its highest um, is the way we begin with noon and work our way back, they would have done it after work. Again, remember, this is a time with no cars, so Sabbath day was typically not a work day, and, and uh, so we have to decide, or you get to decide. Either way, the early church worshipped on the Lord's Day. Then came the 4th century. As the Roman Empire embraced Christianity as an official religion, Sunday, the Lord's Day, took on the title of Christian Sabbath. And work was forbidden. And Sabbath laws began to take on a similarity to the Jewish Sabbath. Now, I'm not advocating that... that uh, um, we don't need to go to church or anything like that. I'm just saying that uh, I mentioned it last week that Sabbath became, you know, became Sabbath prison, right? Remember, I used to be camp director, and on Sunday, what were we allowed? They couldn't swim. They couldn't do any fun things. We had them write a letter home, and uh, that wasn't a very popular day at Christian <laughs> camp. Uh, it wasn't popular for the kids. It wasn't popular for anybody on staff. And Paul is also preaching in Acts that we're not under the law of Moses. But the Jew, 
Acts 21 says, but the Jewish believers here in Jerusalem have been told that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn their backs on the law of Moses. They've heard that you teach them not to circumcise their children, not to follow other Jewish customs. What should we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. And so resting is a day, is a Christian, I'm sorry, a creation principle not to be lightly ignored. The early church seems to speak of Sunday as a day of joy is the word that they seem to use and not necessarily rest. And again, my reading of the early church fathers and study has been light. So um, if you're an expert, I'd love to hear what you have to say. It doesn't imply no rest, but it implies a day that's different than the rest, a day of worship, a day of joy. Legalism is a negative word, right? We all think that we're right. In other words, I'm not a legalist because I'm right. So if you don't do things that I do, you're a legalist. And if you do do things that I don't do, you're liberal, right? Because I know that I'm right. My daughter, when she left for college, went to Karen University. Her roommate was the pastor's daughter of a church about three miles from ours. And uh, after about two days, she calls home and says, Dad, my roommate's family, they watched, uh, I'll let you insert a TV show there, and we weren't allowed to watch it. And that's not all. The show that we watched, they weren't allowed to watch. <laughs> so which is right? And I said, of course we were right. <laughs> you know, I mean... I mean, I was horrified that your family watched that show. You know, my dad used to say this to me, and I tried to say this to my kids. I'm doing the best I can to lead and protect, and I'm going to be wrong. And God, I can't take you out of God's plan for your life. Your responsibility is to, is to submit, and we'll work through this. And I appreciated that so much. So we're going to, well, let me just say one thing about legalism, and that's um, the problem often with legalism is that what's good for me must be good for you. So if I follow your rules, I will be okay. And so much about legalism is the fact that just tell me what to do because I can do that. And uh, Jesus, um, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, many times says, you've heard it said this, and he's saying... Um, uh, for example, the idea of don't commit adultery. And he says you can commit adultery in your heart and not actually physically commit adultery. And so God is calling us to a higher standard than just rules. Sometimes people come to me and say, is it okay to do this? And I, my answer is, well, let's study it. And their answer is, I don't want to study it. I want you just to tell me, can I do this or not? And I'm not going to do that. Unless it's like lie, then I would just say, yeah, it's wrong to lie. But Paul wrote in Colossians, you've died with Christ, and he has set you free from spiritual powers of this world, so why do you keep on following rules of the world such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate when we use them. These rules seem wise because they require strong devotion 
pious self-denial, severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desire. It fixes the outside. In fact, even as I'm reading this this time, I realize this needs to go into my heart file because its rules fix the outside. They do not fix the heart. That's what's the problem with, with legis- you can't legislate righteousness. And so if we make rules, um, you know, I I'm, have this later in my notes, but I can't expect unbelievers to act like believers. You know, my job is to lead them to Christ and let him fix it. And so what happens then is we throw off the yoke of legalism and we're faced with license. Francis Schaeffer tells a great story of, of bringing a group of students together and having a discussion. And at first he thought this was really interesting because they were each from different cultures and talking about the rules of their culture and how shallow the rules were. But he realized that really what they were after was being able to do what they want. Isn't that the tension? Tension is sure in my heart. Um, We don't like rules. We don't like limitations. We want to be free. And Paul, in these two chapters in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, is going to severely challenge our idea of liberty, freedom. We are not under the law of Moses. Thank goodness, right? I like shrimp and bacon. Bacon is like the magic food. You know, it's the only food that cheers when you cook it. Have you ever noticed that? (laughs) Sounds like a football game. We're not under the law of Moses, but we are under the law of love. And fasten your seatbelts. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Here's the big question that is being asked. Can I eat meat that's been offered to idols? Now, I used to say, isn't that ridiculous? Who ever heard of that? And a woman came up to me after church one time, preaching through 1 Corinthians. She said, that was a big problem in, in the neighborhood of Pittsburgh that I grew up. What's this? And every, every, I think it was Christmas or Thanksgiving, Easter, people would take their meat to the church and set it before uh, the saint's statue and ask the saint to bless it. So, you know, you learn something new every day. So this is the question. It's a historic issue, so don't get tripped up in the fact that the principle is about meat. Okay? We're also going to learn in this passage that questions cannot always be easily answered. The Bible clearly addresses sin, do not lie, period. But there are other things that the Bible doesn't explicitly say that may be right or may be wrong. And so it's not just a matter of right and wrong versus finish of one and two and three. Yes, I know that we all have knowledge about this issue. We all know But while knowledge makes us feel important, it's love that strengthens the church. This is not going to be about knowledge. These statements are going to be about love. Anyone who claims to know all the answers doesn't really know very much. It reminds me of Dr. Ryrie. Towards the end of his life, when I would ask him questions, he would say, I used to know the answer to that. 
but I'm not so sure now. But the person who loves God is the one who God recognizes, okay? So that sets the pace. This is not about what you know. This is about something else. It's actually a play on words here. Knowledge makes us arrogant, puffed up is the Greek word, and love edifies, builds up is the Greek word. Paul is not belittling knowledge. He's only pointing out that the priority is love over knowledge. First knowledge, then love. So what do we know? Verse 4. So what about eating meat that has been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol is not really a god, and there is only one god. Okay, so we know that meat offered to an idol is nothing. Period. That's what we know. First knowledge establishes the truth. Two truths. There's no such thing as an idol. There's only one God. So eating meat offered to idol is eating a meat offered to nothing. Why is this even a problem then? Well, verse 5. Some people do believe in and worship idols. There may be so-called gods both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords. But for us, there's one God the Father whom all things were created, for whom we live, and there is one Lord Jesus Christ whom all things were created and through whom we live. Believers know what pagans do not know, that there's really one God, the maker of heaven and earth, and it just seems so simple. If there isn't a God and nothing is happening, why do I need to even think about whether I eat meat or not? And... Yeah, okay, there are other people that believe that it's really an idol. Here's the issue. Some believers are not clear on this. To them, the meat is offensive. Not all believers know this, Paul is saying. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So when they eat food that's been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods, and their conscience is violated. They can't get over whatever the situation is. Not everybody has the knowledge. Not everybody has lived their whole life. They have lived their whole life believing in idols. And when they eat this food, their conscience is bothered. Notice nowhere in this text does Paul say, try to convince them of the truth. That's profound, right? Notice he's not telling them. That's not the point. In fact, there can be teaching on this, but there's not persuasion. This is important. Let me go to Romans, Romans chapter 14, uh, verses 20 through 23. Paul says the same thing. Don't tear apart the work of God over what you eat. Remember, all food is acceptable. But is it wrong to eat something if it makes another person stumble? It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else if it might cause another believer to stumble. You may believe there's nothing wrong with what you are doing, but keep it between yourself and God. Blessed are those who feel guilt. Blessed are those who don't feel guilty for doing something they have decided it is right. But if you have doubts about whether or not you should eat something, you are sinning if you go ahead and do it. You are not following your convictions. If you do anything, 
you believe is not right, you are sinning. Here's the point. It is not a matter of whether the eating of that is a sin. It's a matter of the, what is happening in my heart. And if I am not fully convinced and do it because I am fully convinced, it's sin. If I encourage you to do something before you have become convinced, I am sinning. Let's go. I, let me make this personal. Let me say this in the context of this. I do not think that the Bible prohibits alcohol. Period. The Bible does prohibit a lot of things that alcohol easily lends to. Drunkenness, loss of control, sound judgment. Um, every conversation I've ever heard about alcohol has a wink-wink conversation to it, like, like everybody knows that you know, it's, there's a silliness that happens. It's not about potential of addiction. I could say more about that with myself, but that's not the reason. The number one reason is because my drinking would influence others to drink for me. If you're hearing me say it's a sin to drink alcohol, you're not hearing me right. I do not drink, and one of the main reasons is being a person of influence. I know there are people that would struggle. I know there are people that would drink when they are not fully convinced. When my kids were coming of age, the one thing I said to them is, you know, even with their friends and, and the conversations that go on, it is a sin to try to convince somebody that it's okay to do what they don't think is okay. That's the sin of this passage. The other sin is where I do it and I'm encouraging them to do something they don't feel is right. And so we could go down the list of other things, but that's the simplest one for me. Then Paul sums this up. Eating meat is not something to gain God's approval. Eating meat offered to idols is really not that big of a deal, right? God doesn't say, well, I'm glad you ate that meat offered to idols. So the real issue is the heart. What's happening in my heart? What's happening in the other person's heart? And so God's appeal is to a level even higher than truth. There's an ideal above whether it's right or wrong. And so the question Christians need to ask at times not whether it's right or wrong. It's what happens in my heart and what happens in other people's hearts. Abstaining from food does not bring us closer to God. Verse 9, so be careful, must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. So what you think about an issue is not the issue. It's not just about knowledge. It's not just about right or wrong. Everything we do must be in the context of love. My liberty can hurt people. Verse 10 says it would violate their conscience and their faith destroyed. Could you go back to the previous slide? Because I'm kind of referring to things and then skip over. Sorry about that. I probably should have put that slide both places. Um, it's not addressing, let me make this clear, it's not addressing the situation where someone doesn't like what I do. Sometimes we say, this person's offended, so we need to stop doing that. 
That is not what's here. It's about their faith. For example, the first time somebody wore jeans on the platform, in our deacons meeting that, that next week, somebody said so-and-so was offended that somebody on the platform had jeans. So the question I asked was this. Is that person now thinking about wearing jeans to church and violating their conscience? And they went like, oh, they would never wear jeans to church. Okay, it doesn't apply here. It's not a weaker faith. It's not a weaker knowledge. So because of your superior knowledge, a weaker believer for whom Christ died will be destroyed. The point of it is, I have to catch and check my behavior on how I affect other people. Now, as Americans, we hate this, right? Liberty, self-determination, freedom, all of these. And we just celebrated that. You know, freedom is an important word to us. And what Paul is saying, in love, put your freedom down. In love, put your knowledge down. And do the right thing. It sounds ridiculous, right? Doesn't it sound ridiculous that because you have a conviction? It's not because you have a conviction and I do it. It's because I will influence you to violate your conscience and you will do something that you are not sure is right with God. That's the problem. So Paul doesn't say, don't eat at the temple because you'll be supporting the temple business. That's what we'd say today. It's perfectly legitimate if you want to boycott something as an American, you know, you can do that. But that's not the point here. The point here is what is happening in the hearts of people. So let's clear this up, right? Let's ask the question in the New Testament, is it right to eat meat offered to idols? In Corinth, maybe. In Jerusalem, Antioch, Syrian, Cilicia, it's wrong. It says... In uh, Acts 15.22, as for the Gentile believers, they should do what already we've told them in the letter. That was Acts 15. They should abstain from meat, eating meat offered to idols. Do you understand that? In Corinth, there's nothing about an idol, so you can eat it if it doesn't cause somebody to stumble. It has the weaker person in mind. In these other cities, don't do it because we are taking into consideration for the sake of the Jews. In Galatia, the, so much of the book is leave the Gentiles alone. Stop imposing Judaism. So as I see it, in Corinth, maybe. In Jerusalem, no. And in Galatia, yes. Does that clear it up? What's the appeal here? The appeal is to put aside the right or the wrong of it. It's to say what is happening in the hearts of other people or even in my heart. That's the most important thing is other people's faith. So let's move on to the next chapter to the second thing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I give up my freedoms, my rights for the sake of to win the lost. Paul writes, in the, in, in the beginning of the chapter, he's defending all of the things that he has a right to that he doesn't do. He's, 
He's free as anyone else. He's, he's an apostle. He has a right to Christian fellowship. He has a right to travel with a wife. He has a right to be compensated, and all of these things are his right. But for the sake of the gospel, these are not a reality in his life. So we come to 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23, and six times, six times, Paul is going to talk about a behavior that is for the sake of bringing people to Christ. The free man becomes a slave is the way to, verse 19, even though I am a free man with no master, I become a slave to all people to bring many people to Christ. Now, he doesn't give us a lot of guidance. But here's the principle, is my freedom making an unbeliever uncomfortable? Is my freedom making a person feel or causing them to just dis, dis, uh, what's the word? Ignore everything that I'm saying. I know there's a dis word that I'm missing, but I'll think of it when I sit down to lunch. From my own life, before ministry, for 15 years I was in business. I loved, I loved being a Christian in a secular environment. I absolutely loved it. Everything about it, the challenge, the criticism, the mockery, the conversations when we were alone, going on a business trip one-on-one, and all the questions that would come up, I, I absolutely loved it. In fact, in my department, we had five believers. and. And uh, so every year we would be hiring somebody, and I would suggest hiring somebody from Cedarville. And my boss would go, oh, not another one of you. (laughs) And I'd say, well, let's compare mine to yours. And I so my brother worked in the department, so I'd say, Daryl Peterson, match it. He'd go, just hire him. (laughs) That happened every year. So when the Cedarville guy would come out and we'd sit in my office, I'd close my door. And I would say, here's the deal. There's five of us that are believers. We're the hardest workers. We're honest. We do everything we can to represent Christ to this department. And I just want to know where you stand on that. I want to be convinced that you are going to live for Christ because you could destroy everything. You see, Paul is saying he lived in a way that made the lost person comfortable. His right was not the most important. So verse 20, when I was with the Jews, I lived like a Jew to bring the Jews to Christ. When I was with those who followed Jewish law, I lived under the law too. Even though I was not subject to the law, I didn't have to. I did this so I could bring to Christ those who were under the law. To what extent? Let me set this up with a a true story, 1974 at the Bible Institute. That during those years, collegians went out and sang in churches. So the buses would go out. I had a weekend ministry over in Vermont that I would go to. So the collegians went to a church, and that church thought Word of Life's haircuts were too long. <laughs> so if you know anything about 1974 Word of Life, that's a shocking statement. Um, and the pastor's wife gave every guy a haircut. Does that offend you? It offended them. So Monday night, we're all back. Chapel was after dinner. 
we, our dining hall was where the game room is down there next to the, was it the Wolf Den or whatever that, I didn't say that right, but obviously, but whatever that room, that's where we ate. Dr. Master wasn't at dinner. We finished our meal, came time for chapel. Dr. Master was scheduled to speak and a car pulls up. He walks in, he walks to the mic and he says something like this. He reads Acts 16, one through three. Paul went first to Derby and then to Lystra and there was a young disciple named Timothy. His mother was a Jewish believer. His father was a Greek. Timothy was well thought of by the believers in Lystra and Iconium. So Paul wanted him to join them on their journey in deference to the Jewish area. He arranged for Timothy to be circumcised before they left for everyone knew that his father was a Greek. Gulp, right? Dr. Master then said something like this. Timothy was circumcised for the sake of ministry. And you threw a fit over getting a haircut. This is to your shame. And he closed his Bible and he walked out and got in his car and drove away. And we all sat there in silence. Finally, Mr. Page goes to the mic and says, I guess we're dismissed. <laughs> you think anyone ever forgot that moment? When Paul was with Gentiles, he didn't follow the Jewish law. When I'm with Gentiles, I don't follow the Jewish law. I live apart from that law so I can bring them to Christ. He ate a BLT, right? Now, this is important because if you're thinking, if I'm going to reach a thief, I become a thief. Paul says, but I do not ignore the law of God. I obey the law of Christ. So in all of this, he never violated what the scriptures teach. It doesn't promote lawlessness. I've had people tell me that they were trying to reach people. It wasn't until they started drinking that, you know, or whatever. That's, I get that. I've gotten that story a number of times. This is not an invitation to do something wrong. It's an invitation to join in with a community of unbelievers without making them feel threatened or uncomfortable. But we don't compromise, but make sure that you're, what you're not compromising is biblical, not cultural. So this is important. Yes, I try to find common ground with everyone, doing everything I can to save some. See, Paul is taking the initiative. I've told this before, so forgive me if you've been here long enough. My wife might tell me, you told that two weeks ago, but I don't think so. Two things that changed my life when I was a teenager. Larry Coy spoke at the end. My dad says, I want you to go the first night. If you don't like it, you don't have to go back. During, and I did go back. During that meeting, he said, somebody asked a question, our neighborhood is having a beer and barbecue block party. What should we do? And his answer was, eat all the chicken you can. Second thing was Chuck Swindoll getting ready to go into the military, and his uncle pulls him aside and said, be the friendliest guy that you can possibly be with unbelievers. Invite them to things, do things. That way, when they ask you to do something that you can't do, 
they know it's not because you're unfriendly. Profound. It, I mean, it literally set the tone for my life. You see, Jesus was accused of some things. The Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by its results. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus was a party animal, which I've had people say. If we live like Jesus, we are going to be friends with sinners. And I don't expect unsafe people to act like safe people. When Jesus shows up at, at Matthew's party and the other tax collectors were there, they weren't acting like believers. And my goal is not to change their behavior, but to change their belief that they believe in Christ and he's great at changing people. Here's what Jesus said. The Pharisees and other teachers of religious were complaining bitterly to Jesus' disciples. Why do you eat and drink with such scum? Why do, why do you go out to dinner with such people? It doesn't make sense to me. And Jesus answered them, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I've come to call those who think they are righteous. Not, I've come not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who are sinners and need to repent. You see, Jesus didn't just hang with believers. Really, they don't need help. You understand, and generally speaking, they have access to the truth. He came to hang with sinners. I have come to call, not to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners and need to repent. It's hard. It's hard work. It can take a lifetime. Look at the end of the passage in 1 Corinthians 9. Verses 24 through 27. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs, but only one gets the prize, so run to win. This is in the context of giving up my freedoms to reach the lost. In other words, in athletics, there's one prize. There's one Super Bowl trophy, and the Bengals last year were the best of the losers. Sad to say. <laughs> it's going to happen. I've only been waiting 53 years, but, or 55 years. Athletes discipline their training. They do it to win a prize that fades away. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose every step. I'm not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. Purpose, every step, not just boxing with shadows. Discipline, training my body, I don't want to be a casualty in the context of reaching the world for Christ in a very real way. If you want to be part of our community, you have to get involved. I had to get up at 4 a.m. on the July 4th with all of my kids home and my grandkids and go up and set up cones. That's just one way to get involved. Um, I did not want to do it. I did want to do it and I didn't want to, you know what I mean. And so who are the unsafe people in your life? Who are the people that you're trying to be Christ to? 
You know what one of the freedoms that I give up? Is just hanging out with Christian friends. I'm not advocating not getting together with Christian friends, but we limit that freedom for the sake of the gospel. Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Let's commit ourselves to living our life with purpose, to reach our community, the people in our life for Christ. I'm praying for you and ask for you to pray for me. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for saving me while I was enemy, hostile in deeds and in my thinking, Colossians says. And yet Christ died for me as an enemy. And so, Father, help us to walk as Jesus walked. Help us to see a park filled with thousands of people as people that need Christ and and break our hearts. Help us to go to a concert, a school concert, whatever it is, and to have our hearts broken with people that need to know that Jesus loves them. Wherever we serve with, with people that are unsaved in the marketplace, and our workplace, help us break our hearts. Help us to see people as you see them. God, change my world through me. In Jesus' name, amen.